Well, a very good morning to you and uh, welcome again. And if you can have Galatians chapter 3 open in front of you, that will be a great help this morning. Uh, as you'll probably noticed as we've been going, starting to really get into the meat of uh, this letter, you'll find that there's a lot packed into some very few sentences. So having them in front of you will be invaluable to you. Uh, we will try to put them up on the screen as well to help you out. Uh, but uh, do make use of, of the Bibles that, uh, that are provided. Let's pray before we start. Father, we do ask for your help then this morning. Lord, help us by your Spirit. This is your Spirit-inspired Word. And so we pray, Lord, that uh, you would speak to us through it, that it would live in our hearts. Lord, help us to see those powerful truths that lie within it that point us toward the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. Help us to grow in faith this morning as we hear your word. For we ask this in your name. Amen. Well, as I asked the uh, earlier congregation at 9am, uh, how are your diets? Uh, by which I mean uh, the, the meeting of government people throughout history. You'll know by now that I'm quite passionate about church history. Uh, you've probably all heard of, the one that everybody seems to have heard of is the diet of worms or worms, uh, which kids get very confused about when they hear about that. I'm not sure they teach about it much in, in school today, do they? Sort of the diet of worms. Uh, but it's an interesting name. It basically just means a government meeting where decisions were made. And uh, I want to tell you about a really important one that happened that maybe you're not aware of. Anyone heard of the Diet of Spire? The Diet of Spire it was a great and very important gathering, and it's shaped the world ever since. There were two meetings that happened in this town called Spire. The first one, the first Diet of Spire, was in 1526. Uh, the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire at the time was Charles V. And Charles V had a problem happening in his kingdom. Uh, there were these uh, miscreants that had started to rise up within the church, people like Martin Luther and Ulrich Zwingli, these reformers. And the problem with them was that they were actually starting to make a break away from the Roman Catholic Church. So Charles had to try and sort these things out. But Charles was preoccupied with fighting off Turks and fighting, off, uh, fighting a war actually in France. There were all sorts of things going on that occupied his time. So at the Diet of Spire in 1526, he granted a measure of religious freedom to all the areas of the empire. So depending on which prince was ruling over your area, uh, you could follow his lead. Uh, so for Luther, for example, you had Frederick, Frederick the Wise, and he was giving uh, Luther a lot, of, uh, a lot of leeway. So the Lutheran church started to thrive for a few years. The same was true in a lot of other areas as people were starting to understand the gospel. And that's a wonderful thing. But then in 1529, we get the Diet of Spire that we probably all are a little bit more familiar with the results of, at the very least. At this particular meeting, Charles finally put his foot down and tried to sort things out and to stop this reformation from going on, and to bring everybody back under the Pope. He obviously wanted to curry favour with the Pope. And that was the point at which a lot of these princes and their followers, and a lot of these reformers, rose up in protest against the removal of their religious freedom. 
and they were given the name Protestants. That's where we get the name from, to be a Protestant. You've probably heard that term before. But um, what was the big fuss, really? I hope you're all a little bit familiar with this, but it gets a bit blurred, actually. Why is it that we can't just bury the hatchet today? It's been nearly 500 years, hasn't it, since all of this fuss. Is there really any important difference between Roman Catholics uh, who obey the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church and those like us, the descendants of the Protestant movement, the reformers? Well, of course, one of the real differences was their authority that they, they looked to. So you had the, the reformers look to the authority of Scripture alone. The highest authority, the rule over the church, was the word of God. Whereas for the Roman Catholic Church, it was the church itself. And that was an important difference. But actually, the big important difference was how we are justified. And we've been looking at that over the last couple of weeks, haven't we? It's been our big word of last week. How are we justified? How are we made right with God? See, Rome taught, and I've got a picture here, diagram for you, for those of you, this will be familiar to those who came to my uh, little short talk on Luther. Rome taught, and still teaches, actually, in the doctrine of the church, a doctrine of infused grace. So that's there over on the left-hand side of the diagram. You're born, and then mum and dad take you down to the church, and they get you christened or baptised into the Roman Catholic Church. And at that point, when you are baptised, they say you are infused with grace from God. That's the teaching of the church. God bestows grace upon us so that as long as we don't really screw things up from that point forwards... As long as we don't fall from grace, we get to heaven. And, uh, and the length of time you might have to spend in purgatory depends on what you got up to during life. But as long as you don't do anything particularly bad, commit a mortal sin, then you're going to go to heaven. Purgatory, you see, the doctrine of purgatory, and I would really do want to do a talk on how we got there, how the Roman Catholic Church got to purgatory. But purgatory, it's argued is necessary because even though we might not commit any really bad mortal sins, we still do sin. We sin every day. And that still needs cleaning up, purging, before we are fit for the presence of God in heaven. In this life, you can go about some of that cleaning process within the Roman Catholic faith by doing lots of masses, uh, sacraments and stuff. You can go to confession. You can do penance when the priest tells you, you know, to count your beads or say Hail Marys lots of times. Or you can get a papal indulgence to take some time off purgatory. You can start to make things a bit better. And what you end up with then is that sort of top loop there is a treadmill. Within the Roman Catholic faith, you have a treadmill of a religion. Sin, confess, do penance, repeat. And you have to pay off the rest when you die. But you can work, you can work a lot of it off on that treadmill. But the reformers saw something very different in the scriptures. And I hope that you've been starting to cotton on to exactly what that was. 
as we've been going through the first two chapters of Galatians. The human mind, the human imagination, you see, and we've seen this, haven't we, will always invent some kind of a treadmill for getting right with and keeping right with God. But Paul says, we've seen this, haven't we, that adding anything to the finished work of Christ in salvation actually ends up with another gospel, and he says that is no gospel at all. All. Add to what Jesus has done to save you, and you've got no gospel. It just vanishes. Your gospel is gone. So what have we seen so far in the letter? Let me just recap. Four things we've seen so far, four important points. The first one is we, we've figured out that there are false teachers who've come amongst the Galatians. They've come from Jerusalem. They're preaching a false gospel. And these false teachers, secondly, they have challenged Two things, Paul's right to call himself an apostle in the first place, and they've challenged his message. They say that it's, he's been appointed secondhand, and he's got a secondhand message, and he's probably got it wrong somehow, and that if you want the real truth, you've got to go to Jerusalem, where they've come from, obviously. Third point, Paul counters those accusations by relating the, the truth about what really happened. So he tells them some stories about what actually did happen. His appointment by Jesus, the supernatural origin of his message, and the way that when he did eventually go to Jerusalem, they just held out the right hand of fellowship. They added nothing to it. They expressed a deep unity with Paul. And so the main challenge then, fourthly, that these false teachers are challenging with is their insistence on works of the law to add to our salvation. Because they say, and we saw this last week, if faith in Jesus allows you to drop certain aspects of the law, then what you're actually, what that boils down to is you are saying that Jesus Christ promotes sin. That's their accusation. It's a powerful one, isn't it? Did you understand that? Jesus is promoting lawlessness by your gospel, if you tease it out, Paul. Think about it. You're a Jew. You've been keeping kosher, the law, the law of kosher and the law of separation and the law of circumcision. You've been keeping all of these different things. You've been keeping your holy days. Then, instead of putting your faith in that, you're converted and you put your faith in Christ. And suddenly, the penny drops. That's where I'm justified. So I could actually let go of some of these things. Some of these things can go. I can start eating non-kosher. I can have a prawn cocktail for tea. And it's not going to affect things. So do you see the accusation? By putting your faith in Jesus, you're, you're, making, you're making out that Christ promotes sin. He promotes an uncleanness in you, a lawlessness. It's a serious accusation, isn't it? But Paul insists, actually, listen, if you add the works of the law, circumcision, kosher, keeping holy days to faith in Christ as a means of salvation, then you end up, look at the end of chapter two, you end up, what you end up doing is you set aside the grace of God because you've put your hope in that instead of him. And ultimately, his conclusion at the end of chapter two, what you're saying is, effectively, the cross is meaningless. Jesus needn't have bothered. Christ died for nothing. If he didn't die to save you, he died for nothing. 
And so now, in these first 14 verses of chapter 3, Paul is going to reveal to us the utter folly. In actual fact, the, the, the train crash that results from buying into the idea that once you've been saved by faith, then you need to revert back to a life full of works. That is dangerous, says Paul. So listen, this is important. Here is where the rubber hits the road for us, isn't it? Because I guess that most of us would agree we would want to tip the hat to that foundational truth of salvation by faith alone. We'd want to preach it from the, from the rooftops, wouldn't we? You are saved by faith alone in Jesus. But what about the next day? What about Monday morning? How do I live from that point onwards? How am I supposed to live? To some extent, I think, we all buy into the idea that we have to live by a code of rules in order to maintain our righteousness in God's sight. That somehow we need to earn God's love every day. And that if we don't perform adequately in the way that we live, the things we do, the things we say, then he's going to turn away from us in disapproval somehow. Is that a picture that you have of God somehow in you? Is that functionally what you think? Really interesting question to ask, isn't it? So you need to pay attention to what Paul's going to say next. Let's take a look at it. Verses 1 to 5. You're going to consider three things this morning. The first thing to consider is to consider your own experience. Paul's talking to the Galatians. He says this. Verse 1. You foolish Galatians. Who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Have you suffered so much for nothing, if it was really for nothing? Does God give you his spirit and work miracles amongst you because you observe the law or because you believe what you heard. It's a whole collection of questions there. Now, we've already noted, haven't we, and we've seen it right through the letter that Paul's got the gloves off. Okay, he is not pulling his punches. Foolish Galatians, he says, verse one, verse three, are you so foolish? What is so foolish? What they're doing is foolish. He accuses them, actually, in verse 1, of being bewitched. Someone's got you under a spell, Galatians. It's like you've been hypnotised and taken in. And, it's, and you've been taken in by a teaching, he says, that you should have easily been able to spot was off, was wrong, was folly. Actually, was completely illogical when you look at it. First of all, he says, it doesn't even fit with your own experience of the gospel at all. So these verses we just read contain a rapid-fire collection of statements and rhetorical questions. You'll have seen it. We just read it. To get the Christians to basically snap out of it. It's like a slap in the face. Hey, snap out of it. Start thinking, he's saying. To start with, he says, listen, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was portrayed as crucified. 
This is talking about the message they heard preached when the gospel was first brought to Galatia by Paul and his colleagues. This is day one what they heard. He's saying, think back, what did you hear us saying over and over again? What was our gospel? Because the presentation they gave of God was clearly a, a vivid one, wasn't it? That's what he's saying. He's, cle he's clearly been portrayed. The word actually, I think, means placarded. We put up a great big placard in front of you of the gospel. They painted a word picture that was bold and clear to the Galatians. And what was it a picture of? It was a picture of a saviour who was crucified. That's what he says. That's the heart of the gospel that Paul preached. Uh, he says the same thing to the church in Corinth. If you turn to Corinthians, uh, we'll put it up on the screen, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says this to them. Listen, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's the essence of Paul's gospel. That's the content of it right there, isn't it? You can be sure that there, I mean, there's something missing there, isn't there? You can be sure that the one ingredient Paul never put in his gospel when he preached it was works of the law. He never came to them and said, right, you lot, you're an untidy bunch. Your life's in a mess. You're going to get it straightened out. That wasn't included in the message they first heard and believed. He never told them, right, first thing, circumcised, then let's just make sure you're getting the holy days right. Let's clear out your pantry, sort out your kitchen, deep clean of the kitchen, we're going to go kosher. None of these Galatians came to Christ believing that a sinner was accepted to God by, first of all, clearing up their life and improving themselves first. That was not the gospel they heard. It was not the gospel they believed. No, the clear portrayal, the, the picture of Jesus given in their preaching was Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us. Look at chapter one again, verse four. It's right there. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. A rescuer, not an examiner or an inspector to see if you're up to scratch, a rescuer to lift you out of the pit. That's what was preached. A rescuer on the cross, dying for you. So, listen, God was, this is what they'd understood, God was, at that moment when they believed the gospel, when they heard it and believed, God was able to see us as righteous, with our sins dealt with. Why? On the basis of the sacrifice of his son. You were, that was it. If you died at that moment, all of them would have believed, I'm saved, right? It was a joyful realisation they'd had when their eyes were first opened by the Spirit of God and they put their faith in Jesus Christ. So, Paul says he would like them to know one thing from them. Having heard that gospel, having believed that gospel, one thing. It comes in the form of four questions and the first is in verse 2. First, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? That's the first little mind jog. And it should be a really easy question to answer, right? That's why he's saying they're foolish, because they know this. Why does Paul ask this, then, about receiving the Spirit? Because 
and this is fundamentally important for us to believe, to receive the Spirit is to receive the mark within you that you belong to God, that you are one of his redeemed people. I want you to check out, okay, give me three verses to check out. If you want to jot them down, fine. So you can just check that they're all in context and they're right. Romans 8 verse 9, have a look at what the apostle says. If anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That's pretty clear, isn't it? Yeah, so if you've got the spirit of Christ, you belong to Christ. If you don't, you don't. It's the mark that shows whether you're one or the other. Ephesians chapter 1. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. What did you have to do to be marked with the seal, the promised Holy Spirit? Believe. Not do a whole load of stuff. Having believed, you were marked. And he is, verse 14, a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. It's very clear, isn't it? If you've believed, you've got a seal in you, a mark, the Holy Spirit, you're his possession. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We've not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. That's what you are as a Christian, that you may understand what God has freely given us. It's quite clear, isn't it? I hope you can see that. God gives his spirit to all his people. It's a mark that you are one of his people. What led to you receiving the spirit, says Paul? What led to that? Was it a whole bunch of law keeping? Did you keep enough laws and then suddenly, poof, you got the spirit of God? Or, he says, was it by believing the message of the gospel? Which one, which one achieved it? Which one made you a possession of God? Now, remember, these are by and large gentle, Gentile believers, aren't they? I mean, most of them probably had never even opened the Jewish law books, had never tried to keep the law before they heard Paul's message. And yet they clearly received the Spirit. This is, I mean, it's interesting, it's actually a direct parallel to Peter's experience that we looked at in previous weeks, isn't it? Remember when he goes to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius is an Italian. He's of the Italian regiment. He's about as Gentile as you can get. In this particular case, those Italians, when they first believed the gospel, were told by Peter's account they started to speak in tongues and to praise God. It was like a it was like a, a, another repetition of what happened at Pentecost. What was Pentecost all about? The Spirit of God being sealing his people. These are my people. And again, in Cornelius' house, the same thing happens. And so when Peter reports that incident to the church in Jerusalem, he presents Exhibit A to them to justify what's, been, what's happened, why he went into their home. He says, listen, Acts 11, verse 15, as I began to speak, as I was telling them the gospel, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us in the beginning. And so the church in Jerusalem conclude in verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections but praised God, saying, so then God has granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. Clearly they could see it, couldn't they? 
Oh, they're God's people. They've got the seal of being God's people on them, the Spirit. And Paul points out, if you look back in Galatians chapter 3, look at verses 4 and 5. It was the same for the Galatians. They had experienced all kinds of evidence, says Paul, of the Holy Spirit being given to them. Even, he says, miracles, miraculous things had happened. It was clear, so clear to them that they'd received the Holy Spirit. And so here is the actual point. All of that happened without them being preached the law and hearing the law and applying the law. The law, did, the law didn't assist in any way in them becoming God's people and receiving the Holy Spirit. So verse 3 then is the real question, right in the heart of these five verses. The real question, look at it. Are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? Do you see what it was, chiding them like that? What's their goal? What's the goal of every believer? You can read it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 5, if you look down, where Paul writes, By faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. The goal of all believers, your goal and my goal, is to stand before God righteous on the final day, isn't it? Isn't that what you want more than anything else? Clearly, they understood. This is what he's appealing to them. You understood that God made you right without any works on your part on day one, when you heard and believed the gospel, when you put your trust in Jesus. But now, you seem to have bought into the belief that God requires human effort to keep it. That from now on, it's going to take some work. Another basis. You started on that basis, and then you've moved to another one. That's what he's saying. Do you see how foolish that is? Have, have, have this, has this come home? How stupid this is? Let me give you a couple of silly illustrations. Imagine you're a kid. You, you wake up on Christmas morning. You go down, and they're under the Christmas trees. Loads of presents. And they've all got your name on them. Beautiful presents. And as you unwrap them, you've got everything, everything that you asked for. It's absolutely brilliant Christmas day, and you enjoy those gifts. They're wonderful gifts. But then you go to bed, and you wake up on Boxing Day, and you think, oh, you're anxious. What am I going to do to keep my gifts? Oh, I'm going to have to work really, I am going to have to try really, really hard. Otherwise, they're just going to take those gifts away from me. To behave that way is to not understand what a gift is, is it? Isn't it? It's like an orphaned child. This is very close to many of our hearts, really. A child who gets adopted into a home and they're brought into a home. And they've got a mum and dad. And mum and dad say, we are your forever mum and dad. We're your forever family. And then that child lives each day anxious. If I don't get an A in everything I do at school, if I'm not up to scratch, they'll throw me out of the family. It's foolish. It is not to understand the word adoption, isn't it? Folly, foolishness, foolish Galatians. Now let's consider Abraham. Let's consider Abraham, verses 6 to 9. Consider Abraham, Paul continues. 
he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, Paul starts this little section with an, a, a, a quote that he often quotes in his reasoning. It's, uh, it's in many of his letters. The basis of our righteousness, our being right before God. Bible teacher R.C. Sproul once commented that actually a better name for us than Protestants, and I've got to say I never use the word Protestant to describe myself, but better than to be known for our protest is he's saying let's actually be known for what we really stood for. We should be known, he says, as imputationists. So there you go, you can tell everybody you're an imputationist because that is where the key difference lay and still lies. Imputation is a theological term that is worth taking time to grasp. So last week, our big theological concept was justification, wasn't it? And this week, we're going to understand imputation. Imputation. What does it mean to have something imputed? Martin Luther used an illustration. Now, you've got to understand, Martin Luther was, he he had his faults and he had good things about him. But he was a very earthy man, okay? He was a man of of the people. Uh, And so his illustrations were usually quite earthy. One, the illustration he used for this was, he would look out of the fields and, you know, everybody had a little bit of farmland and obviously you've got to keep the farmland nice and fertile. So you'd be always gathering all your poop from your animals. All the dung would be piled up into these hills. And so the landscape, when you looked out at it, you'd always be able to see these little lumps. It was something everybody saw, these sort of lumps of manure piles. That's what it is. Luther said, you and me, we're basically like those. We are these great big piles of manure. That's what we are as human beings. You know, we're, we're just disgusting. We, there's nothing in us of any, of any real worth. Uh, we need saving. Okay? This is his, his kind of language. And then he said, look at what happens when winter comes. When winter comes, you get the first fall of snow. And suddenly those disgusting mounds of poop are covered with a pristine layer of of bright, brilliant white snow. And suddenly what looked disgusting is a beautiful thing, covered in a beautiful covering. This is how Luther tried to explain Christ's righteousness imputed to you and me. Jesus takes our guilt. He takes our sin. And he takes them to the cross where he bears them. And he gives to us in place his righteousness. Not our righteousness worked up by keeping law, but his righteousness. Our hope, our goal is achieved because we will ultimately stand before God on that final day, the day of judgment, cloaked, as it were, in the righteousness of Christ. That's how God will receive us. And it's a righteousness, note, that is not earned. It is a righteousness that is freely credited to us. That's what taking us now to Abraham. Put into our account simply on the basis of faith. And Abraham is 
the scriptural model for this happening right there in the book of Genesis. Now, Abraham is a wonderful story, pitch story, and perhaps you're familiar with the story of Abraham. The story of Abraham starts in Genesis chapter 12. And in that chapter, Abraham is called by God. It's a big deal, actually. He's told to leave everything, leave his home, and to just go where God leads him. God hasn't even told him a destination. He's just saying, leave your home and follow me. That's big. I wonder how many of us would have the faith to do that. But Abraham obeys. That's the direction of his life. He's a man who obeys God. And he receives an astounding promise for God. It's repeated here in verse 8, part of it, in verse 8 of Galatians chapter 3. All nations will be blessed through you. That is a promise that brings you and me in, isn't it? All nations will be blessed through you, Abraham. Now, we forward wind slightly to Genesis chapter 15. This is where our next quote comes from in, in Galatians. Abraham, again, receives a word from God in that chapter. He's told, Abraham, your offspring, okay, he's got no kids at the moment, your offspring are going to be more than the number of the stars in the, in the heavens, in the sky, in the night sky. And, and believe me, with no light pollution in those days, that would have been an amazing sight, wouldn't it? Just full, like clouds of stars. He says, your, your offspring are going to be greater than that. You've got to understand, at this point, Abraham, he's got no children. And not only has he got no children, he's very old. I said to the um, congregation that were here for 9am, who are they're the 70-plus uh, group, I said, look, imagine if in 10 years' time you decided, now's the time I'm going to start my family. Yeah? It's unbelievable. It's supernatural if that's going to happen, isn't it? And in fact, Abraham is still clinging to that promise when he's nearly 100 years old. And Sarah, his wife, is about 90. Still holding on to that promise. Still no children yet. But he believes. He believes. God has said it. And so he trusts it. And here's the important part of the story. God then makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant's basically a contract, a promise. An ironclad promise, isn't it? And he does it right there and then with Abraham. In actual fact, the Hebrew word for making a covenant is to, is to cut a covenant. That's what you do. Uh, we use a similar expression, don't we, when we say, I'm going to cut a deal with you. It comes from this, this whole idea. He cuts a covenant. Now, it's a bit of a weird story in Galatians 15, but follow it. See, we would usually sign a contract or a covenant with paper and ink. Yep, we'd, you know, indelible ink, we'd write our name on it. But God tells Abraham, you know, we're not doing that. What I want you to do, Abraham, is get some animals. You're going to get a collection of these different animals, and I want you to slaughter all of these animals. And then you're going to cut those animals in half, as if to say, should, should this covenant be broken, may that be done to me. That's, the, that's how serious the covenant is. Ripped a half. And then comes the signature. God's going to sign the covenant. And what happens in Genesis 15 is the, the day ends and darkness falls. So we get darkness. And then a flaming torch passes through the midst of these animals. It's very, very weird. And God makes, by doing this, an unbreakable covenant with Abraham. That's God signing the covenant. Abraham has believed God. 
And we're told right there and then, God credits, his, credits that belief, that faith to him as righteousness. You now have a right standing with me, Abraham. Nothing more is required from Abraham. And that's an important point. Because the false teacher is going to object at this point because actually Paul's stolen his thunder. Paul's used the proof text that the false teacher with his works gospel is wanting to use himself. How so? Because he'll object, yes, Abraham began by faith, Paul, correct. He started by faith in Genesis 15. But what about Genesis 17, Paul? Two chapters later, we get this whole idea of circumcision. Doesn't Abraham continue by keeping the law? Isn't that how he stays righteous? But Paul has turned their proof text against them. As I said to you last week, how do you deal with someone throwing proof texts at you? You go back and look at the context. You read it carefully, which is what they're not doing. The first point is this. When this happened to Abraham, well, you've got to remember this, Abraham's not even a Jew. So telling people they have to become a Jew to be right with God is, is complete nonsense, isn't it? He's not even a Jew at that point. And he never becomes a Jew, actually, funnily enough. And more importantly, though, here's the key. Abraham was credited righteousness... Righteousness was put into his account, safe, kept in his account, before circumcision even became a thing, before it is even founded. The one wasn't dependent on the other, not even a tiny bit. That is to say, God counted Abraham already righteous, even before he was circumcised. If they've got a misunderstanding of what circumcision was all about... What was circumcision all about? And it's, we need to think clearly about this because things do get a bit muddied. It was simply the old covenant sign that you were one of God's people. You belong to God. Right? Is this sounding familiar? But under the new covenant, see if you can make the connection now. Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, verse 29, look. A man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Do you see what he's saying? Circumcision for the believer under the new covenant, whether they're Jew or Gentile, is not external. It's a big sigh of relief, isn't it? Instead, it is internal. It is by the Spirit, the mark of belonging to God. In effect, isn't he basically saying to them, look, you Galatians, you've, you've actually been circumcised in the only way that's important. Your hearts have been circumcised when you believe the message of truth. Well, finally, then, in those last verses, in verses 10 to 14, and please see this, this is really exciting stuff. We're then to then to consider the cross. That's the first thing. So we've considered our experience, we've considered Abraham, now consider the cross. Verse 10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, 
Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one is justified by God, before God, by the law. Because, quote, the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, the man who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that, we, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Now, have you noticed there's a whole load of quotes from the Old Testament here? It's really important that you see all of that. He's, I mean, remember who he's dealing with. He's, he's taking you back. He's schooling these Judaizers in what the Old Testament really says and how we should apply it. So here, Paul has drawn a contrast between, on the one hand, living by faith. You see it in verse 11. And on the other hand, living by works. Verse 12. And by doing this, he highlights the madness, the foolishness of starting by faith and then reverting back to the law. It's a silly thing to do. It's foolish to do. The law, you see, is, is a really good thing because it, it reflects the, character, the moral character of God. That's what we see in the law, isn't it? The law is a beautiful thing. I mean, read through something like Psalm 119 and see 176 times it's basically the author saying oh the law is wonderful the law is brilliant i love the law i live by the law the law is like honey to my taste it's sweet to my taste it's a beautiful thing the law the law is good but if you try to use the law to justify yourself here's the bombshell what it will do is it will put you under a curse why because the law condemns those who break it you know, I don't know about you, when I was a kid, um, when you were at school and you did an exam or a test or something like that, I, I kind of knew if I got about 70% on the test, I'd got an A, right? A, 70, 70, 70% to 75%. That's an A. And you had that feeling when you got an A, I've nailed it. I've, I've, I've conquered this subject. I'm an A-grade student, right? I mean, today it's all over the place, isn't it? First of all, they added the A stars, and now they've gone to numbers so they can, you know, the sky's the limit. But getting an A was, was really good. It means you'd aced things. The law doesn't do that, does it? The law doesn't. The law court is not going to congratulate you because you did not murder 99% of the people you don't like. The law doesn't do that. The law focuses in on the one. It focuses in on the one person that you murdered. That makes you a lawbreaker. Break it in any part, you're a lawbreaker. You know, you often ask this question, don't you? You know, you say to people, you know, have you ever stolen anything? And, you know, eventually you win the argument that, yeah, you have. Because even when someone offered you one sweet at a party, you took two. Well, what is that? Oh, but it's so, so small, isn't it? I said, well, what do you call someone who takes something they shouldn't take? A thief. Yeah, you're a thief. You're a thief. I don't care that you only did it once and it was only a, you know, one of those toffee ones that nobody likes from the quality street. You are a thief. That's how the law works, isn't it? The curse falls on you. But the righteous, the righteous, they will live by faith, 
not by perfect law-keeping. Faith in the righteous one who became a curse for us. See, Jesus was inarguably, absolutely, completely perfect. He kept every letter of the law. He's the only man that would have got 100% on law-keeping, isn't he? But in taking our sin on himself, in his body, he came under the curse of the law. And you can see that from that Old Testament quote. Because cursed is anyone who's hung on a tree. The perfect, sinless, law-keeping one was demonstrated to the world to be cursed. Why? Not because of anything he did, but because he was bearing a curse. Our, our curse was imputed onto him. Do you see the word again? He took our curse on the tree at Calvary where he was cursed. And it was there also, listen, that darkness fell. We saw it at the end of Mark, didn't we? And there was a slaughtered sacrifice as God signed a new covenant in his blood. That's the gospel. Just like Abraham, do you see it? We are to look at the slaughtered one and to put our trust in the promise that God has made to justify us, to clothe us in his righteousness, finally and completely. That is to walk by faith, to live by faith. He's given us a righteousness, not our own, his righteousness. And you know, every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, this is a major application of this teaching, isn't it? We gaze by faith when we celebrate that supper every time at the once-for-all sacrifice that was made for us. We should never leave from having celebrated the Lord's Supper without seeing afresh the source of our finished, completed salvation in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us. Bible teacher John Piper makes this remark. It's quite a good little summary. We can pop it up on the screen. The essential mark of a Christian is not how far you've progressed in sanctification, but on what you're relying to get there. It's what you're relying on. It's another word for faith, isn't it, to rely on. We've talked about how not to proceed in the Christian life. We don't proceed by trusting in works. But how then should we live? Well, we go on as we began. That's the point that Paul's making, isn't it? You don't begin one way and carry on another way. You carry on the same way. You were saved by faith, now live by faith. Walk step by step with the Spirit who you received by faith the day you believed. And we'll see more of how that works out as we carry on through the letter. But our time is up this morning. So make sure you don't miss next week's instalment as we see Paul grappling here with our understanding of the law. But uh, let's, let's pray as we close this morning. Father, we thank you that Jesus has taken for us the curse of the law. We thank you that we have been justified and set free. We've been redeemed. We've been credited a righteousness that's not our own. We thank you that no condemnation awaits us because our Saviour gave his life on the cross. He's given us his righteousness. 
We thank you for your unfailing promises, which have been fulfilled in your son. Promises made to Abraham thousands of years earlier. Now we see them vividly come to life in the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us then not to be deceived, not to return once again to the the folly, the foolishness of trying to prove ourselves before you by the works that we do. Instead, help us now to live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for us. Amen.